Do you aspire to become a responsible leader? How do you see yourself now as a young man? Learning from challenges is one thing, but getting opportunities is another. If you're a young man who wants to learn about personal growth, life lessons, and leadership, tune in to Essential 11, Shaping Leaders Among Leaders. How are you, sir? Great. Good to see everyone. How's it going? And life is good. And I was going to say good morning, but it's not morning where you are. Is that correct? Very much not. It's 9 p.m. out here in Singapore. Oh, my gosh, man. You're awesome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for, for making this happen and the flexibility on all this, man. Super, super appreciative of... of uh, my pleasure. Anything for you guys, of course. It's awesome, man. Thank you for that. And so um, I want to jump right in, man. We'll have a couple guys that'll still kind of, I'm sure, be popping on the screen. Um, but I very much want to honor your time, uh, especially with it being 9 p.m. out there. So we got introduced through a mutual friend. and. I went, okay, anytime I got a good person making a, a recommendation, I want to dive in. And then I started diving into your work too. And I'm like, I already knew it was going to be good, but man, I am fascinated by everything you do. It, uh, first and foremost, amazing, just an amazing body of work. And it comes across obvious that you are also just a very good human being. So first and foremost, <laughs> man, before we even dive into you, I just want to say thank you. For, That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, man. Very much. So. I, don't, I don't know if I can live up to that, but I'll do my best. <laughs> man, I you just I think you just being you and talking about what you do is is it. And that's really where we'll roll with this, man, is we've got amazing men on this call with us from all over the world. And um Tim Kennedy and I are lucky enough to to join forces with these guys. And you know, we take a year and dive into everything. How do we get our psychology right? How do we take a look at uh, you know, our physical health. How do we take a look from an entrepreneur's standpoint? How do we take a look at being the best dad we can be, to being the best fathers we can be? We're taking a look at the totality of that. And um, so every month, you know, we have these different components that we look in and I'm looking at your work and I'm like, ooh, yeah, when we're talking about time, you know, time management and energy management, like, yeah, spot on. Ooh, we're talking about from the entrepreneurial standpoint, spot. So like, I'm just, again, looking at your stuff going, oh, it's right in line, man. So um, you and I'll chat a little bit, and then these guys will have some questions, and that'll, and then we'll put it out to a podcast that goes out to a six-figure audience too. So wins all around, man. That sounds awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. So where do we start? So let's. I like to actually start with your version of who Near is, and that's so just you in your own words, because we got the official bio. We'll put the official bio out. But for these guys here, man, let's get near in your own words, and then we'll dive into some of the fun stuff you've been up to. Sure. So my name is Nir Ayal, and I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a small business owner. I'm an author. My job, my professional uh, obligation is that I'm a behavioral designer. So I help companies build the kind of products and services that people use because they want to, not because they have to. And uh, to do that, I use consumer psychology and behavioral design to uh, build habit-forming products for good. So I work with uh, all sorts of industries from SaaS products to enterprise products to consumer web, health tech, fintech, ed tech, anything that requires repeat behavior. And a lot of that is based on uh, this book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. That was my first book that uh, came out of a class I taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and then later at the Hasselblad Institute of Design. And then more recently, I went to look at the other perspective of if Hooked is about how do you build habit-forming products for good, then the other side is what do we do when we have bad habits that we want to break? And so that's what my second book is about, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. It takes a look at how do we break the bad habits that keep us from living our full potential. 
So good, man. So good. So as you can see, gentlemen, there is a, there are a million things we want to dive into. So I'm going to start with a super high level in that because um, I'd love to hear about how you got into it and what got you curious about that too. But I want to ask first, what in your experience do people have more trouble with? Is it building the good or is it breaking the bad? That's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. That's a really, really good question. I don't know if I can say Athlete. that. Uh, yeah, good one. I, I I don't know if that's if I can say across the board. I think everybody's in a different state in life, right? Life is kind of a series of challenges and and uh, uh, opportunities, and uh, sometimes it's about creating new behaviors, and sometimes it's about breaking bad behaviors. So I don't know if I could yeah. give, in my experience, uh, well, I'll tell you this: it was written for different audiences. So hooked was for people in business, right? People building products mm -hmm. that they want people to use again and again. It wasn't really a personal, uh, like personal habit habit change type book. It was for only for product people, right? Business right. people who building apps, building websites, building services, anything that needs repeat engagement. Um, indistractables for everyone. <laughs> That's yeah, about breaking yeah. bad habits, specifically around distraction. So I guess it was in a way a different audience, but sorry, that probably wasn't a very oh, satisfying it's a great. Answer. It's a great thing because it gets me thinking because it's like, in one hand, and I love some, you know, I've read so many of your articles now um, and so much you're working on. And, and I can't wait. I honestly can't wait to, to read the books too. So I have books on order. So it's like you're, you're talking about collecting these patterns and you're talking about building products that are, are building these behaviors. And I love that you said it's, you know, behaviors, you're building these products that people will use because they want to, not because they have to. But you've actually used, you've said people a lot of times are, you're built into these products, people are oftentimes almost like cajoled or manipulated into. And so you've actually said like, hey, I want to walk away from the manipulation side. I want it to be a want to, not because you have to. So I think that's a super fascinating thing because you're like, look, let's build the, these things because there's a, a backbone of like ethics and morality in the in the want to versus have to, right? And so you're building this, but then knowing on that back end, hey, by the way, some of this is meant to make you distracted. So I want to make sure you're not being distracted, right? So you're really like tackling both sides of the of the argument here. And I think that's fascinating, man. Well, well they're meant to be compliments. Uh, they're yes. not contradictions. So it's yes. not like I wrote hooked and unhooked. They're, they're meant to, you know, right. some products we want to get hooked to, right? I'd be a yeah. product that changed my life. I'm 45 years old. I'm in the best shape of my life. Because I exercise for the first time in my life because this wonderful app Fitbot, I don't have any affiliation with the company, but I wrote about it in my book. Uh, this exercise app got me into the exercise habit, mm -hmm. right? It was amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, learning new languages with Duolingo, what, connecting with loved ones. Look, we're using this habit forming product right now. I'm in Singapore. Right. I'm not even sure where you are. We're talking to guys all over the world. You know, these technologies are amazing, right? These are, these are, this is stuff that if you would have told me when I was uh, 10 years old that we'd be talking through video phone screens, I would have said, you know, that's science fiction. The price of all this amazing progress is that we have to learn how to use these tools, right? A lot of people complain and say, oh, our brains are being hijacked and we're all getting addicted and, uh, you know, our, our attention is being stolen. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. We're giving it away, so right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and so that's really what I wanted to combat with Indistractables. That I think there's a lot of books out there, and I, I read them all because I, I, you know, I don't write a book uh, that somebody else has already read, right? If somebody has re written, uh, sorry, if somebody has written a book already on a topic, I just read that book and I fix the problem I had in my own life. But mm -hmm. in this case, 
uh, I had this problem of distraction in my own life, especially when my my career started really taking off after my first book. And then I, I, I had this problem for myself and all the books out there about focus and distraction were written by professors who said, well, stop using the internet, right? Stop using social media, stop using email. Well, thanks. You have a tenure, you know, like if I stop yeah. using the internet, I'll, I'll get fired. I can't do that. I'll lose my livelihood. That's and right. so I really wanted a practical solution that spread this message that we have to stop thinking of ourselves as victims to these technologies and realize that they're amazing life-changing tools. The price of all that progress is that we have to learn how to use these tools so that they serve us as opposed to us serving them. But that, that's a new skill set for you. It certainly was a new skill set for me because I was always online and that was coming at the detriment of my family relationships. It was certainly coming at the detriment of my health. I wasn't working out. I wasn't eating right. I wasn't getting the work done that I knew I needed to do. I was doing everything but checking emails and the news and social media, as opposed to doing the work I know I had to do to move my life and career forward. So I really wanted to empower people as opposed to telling them, oh, technology is the enemy. It's melting your brain because that is just not the truth. So good, man. And you do, you provide, even in the article that I mean, you're giving a great framework around a lot of these things. And we talk often about definition of terms and how words matter. And um, you know, we, we talk about it all the time. And I love the way you reframe so many things. And I've written down a, a, um, a few things that you said, and I want to kind of unpack before we even get to that. How did you get interested in this in the first place? Like, what were the catalysts where you really started? Because I know you've built businesses, you've sold businesses, right? You've done a lot from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Was it because of the industry you were in and studying that you're like, man, I'm seeing these patterns and like, this is what really put you down this trajectory of, of study. Was there something on the personal side? Like what, what were the biggest catalysts for you in this work? So uh, I've always been fascinated with how products change our behavior. I used to be clinically obese and I remember feeling like food controlled me. And for a while I blamed the food companies for making me fat. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I realized that I wasn't eating in excess because food was delicious. I wasn't even eating too much because I was hungry. Mm -hmm. I was eating my feelings, right? I was eating because I felt lonely. I was feeling because I felt bored. I was feeling, I, I ate because I felt ashamed about how much I had just eaten. And that was this vicious cycle that led to me being clinically obese. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I realized that, that yes, of course, these products play a role right? Of course, McDonald's is engineered to be delicious. Would we want it any other way? <laughs> like I want Krispy Kreme once in a while. I want McDonald's to be delicious. That's their job, right? Like yeah. we're going to say, hey, Netflix, stop making your show so interesting. Okay. I want to watch yeah, them a lot. Totally. That's ridiculous. We want these things to be exciting and they should be. Yeah. But I didn't learn the proper place for these things, right? Again, like the price of all this progress is that we have to learn some new ways of living to make sure that that we live the life we want. So my 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 interest in this field started very, very young. Uh, at first, I wanted to figure out how I could use these technologies for good. I wanted to steal the secrets of Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat. I had started a previous company in the gaming and advertising space. And then when that company was sold, I thought I was going to start another company. And I knew this was about 2012. So the, uh, the Apple App Store was only about four years old. And I realized that habits were going to be very, very important. And when I looked around for a book on how to build habit-forming products, I couldn't find one. So I decided to reach out to my former clients that I had in my last company. And uh, many of them worked at these at these companies I just mentioned. And, and I started to kind of poke them for their secrets and see if I could put it in a uh, a model, a framework that would be simple enough to be useful that I myself could use. But then in the course 
of explaining this to myself, I started a blog and then that became a class that I taught at Stanford. And then the speaking and the teaching, I kind of really enjoyed it. And so that became my next business. Yes. Uh, and then with Indistractable, there really was a, a seminal moment where uh, I was with my daughter one afternoon and uh, we homeschool. And so we had this beautiful afternoon, just some daddy daughter time. And I remember we had this, uh, this activity book of different things that dads and daughters could do together. And I remember there was this question in the book uh, that I'll never forget. The question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And the idea was to kind of share answers and, you know, just have a good time answering this because just get to know each other better. And I remember uh, when my daughter started to answer that question, for some reason, I thought it was a good time to just start checking my phone for a quick sec. I just had this one thing I had to do on my phone real quick. And by the time I looked up for my device, she was gone because she'd gotten the very clear signal that I was sending that whatever's on my phone was more important than she was. And she went to go play with some toy outside. Yeah. And so that's when I knew I blew it. And if I'm honest with you, Matt, it wasn't just with my daughter. It would happen when I was, uh, you know, but I would tell myself, oh, today's the day I'm going to eat right. Today's the day I'm going to exercise. Today's the day I'm going to, you know, work on that big project. But I didn't and I wouldn't. I kept getting distracted. And so I really wanted to figure out why. And what I discovered was that the 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 real reason I got distracted was what much more interesting and much more empowering than just my initial knee-jerk reaction, which which was to blame it on what was in my hand, to blame it on my device. And so that was kind of the inciting incident to uh, uh, to learn more about the psychology of distraction. My goodness, man. So many good things right there um, alone. I love um, and I'm taking this from the perspective of all the different conversations, especially with with this amazing group of men and the different points where they are in this journey with us, too. So one of the things you're talking about is how, you know, you sold this company and then you figured the next thing was going to be this, but it ends up being this, which led to this, which led to this, which led to this. And I just I love hearing those stories from so many successful men, because that is the way it goes. Like, and, and it's, totally. we're trying yeah. to help people realize it's not always about finding the path. It's about forging it. And you don't actually know, you just know you need to take the next step forward. And you don't necessarily know what the next things are going to look like. You don't know 10 years from now, what you're going to do right when you grow up kind of thing. Right. Um, and exactly. your, story, your story lays that out. I love that you said the price of progress. We've got all these amazing tools, but there is a price to progress. And right. I, right. I, I think that is beautifully framed, man, and something amazing to remember. And that's part. And then you illustrated it beautifully with that story. And one of the questions I was going to ask you about was knowing what you know now. What is mm -hmm. that? What does that look like as a parent? I'm, we, I home educate too. Many of these guys home educate, um, you know, their own kids. You illustrated a great story about your own shortcoming on the pair. And man, I have been in that situation. I have done that very thing. I think we all have. We're, we're members of the right. same club here. <laughs> yes, sir. I mean, we have blown, we have blown that. We have felt the heartache with that. And so my mind goes to, okay, first of all, yes, I've got to make sure I'm better so that that's not the thing. I'm not, that's not the message that I'm sending to my mm -hmm. young heroes. But then I start looking and going, okay, there is a price to progress. We don't know what the next steps are for these young heroes that we get to raise. How do we parent them in a way where they understand and are able to somewhat, as much as possible, avoid the distractions right. before it starts to take over them too? Do you think about that in terms of parenting? Oh my gosh, absolutely. There, 
So how do you absolutely there, there's a whole section in the book uh, about how to raise indistractable kids, Ooh. because I think that this is the skill of the century is that, uh, you know, you you can fill your kids heads with knowledge, but if they can't harness the focus and the attention to do what they want to do with that knowledge, it never becomes wisdom. They can't apply it. And this is the skill of the century, because, look, if you think the world is distracting now. Just wait a few years, yes, sir. right? With virtual reality, augmented reality, God knows what other things are going to happen in actual reality. The world is only going to become a more distracting place. So let me tell you guys, the world is bifurcating into two kinds of people, mm. people who will allow their time and attention to be controlled by others and people who say, no, I will decide what I listen to. I decide what I will watch. I decide who I will spend my time with. I will decide where I spend my time and attention because I am indistractable. Indistractable, I made up the word, right? And so I can define it any way I want, but yes, it's sir. meant to sound like indestructible, mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's meant to, to be that superpower that I wish I had had, right? When I, when I had this conversation with my daughter, that is really the skill of century. Uh, because again, like you can read all kinds of things and listen to all kinds of gurus, but if you don't have the fortitude to stick with something long enough to apply what you learned. Mm -hmm. And what's the point? It was in one ear, out the other. So it's absolutely critical. We teach our kids how to become indistractable. And the first step, the very first step to becoming, to, to raising an indistractable kid, unfortunately, is that you need to become an indistractable parent because children, every parent listening to me right now knows this, that every child is born with these invisible antennae. You can't see them. But this is what we call the hypocrisy detection device. They are always scanning their environment to see where you screw up. And I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to over the past decade doing my research. Well, they'll tell me, my, my kid's on Fortnite all the time. My kid's always on TikTok. And meanwhile, while they're telling me this, they're checking their phones, looking at Facebook or work email or doing whatever on their device. You can't do that, right? We have to be indistractable ourselves. So that's step one. The other four steps, if you allow me, Matt, maybe it's a good time to kind of go over this model that I, I, I spent uh, over a decade now researching around what causes distraction. How do we become indistractable? Is that all right if I go over that real quick? I would love it. Absolutely, sir. All right. Terrific. So let, I know you're a big uh, semantics guy. You, you like the, you know, defining terms. And, and that's exactly where I started with this journey as well, is, is what is distraction? What, what really is distraction? One of the best ways to know if you truly understand what a term means is to ask yourself, what is the opposite of that term, right? What's the antonym of distraction? Most people will tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, but that's actually not true. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Of course it is. When I say it, it becomes super obvious, right? We have traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which comes from the Latin root, uh, the Latin word for pull. Okay. And you'll notice that both words, action, attraction and distraction, end in the same word. They both end in action, reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us. It is an action that we ourselves take. So traction by definition is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do. Things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite is any act of distraction, any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, away from your values, away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So is this just semantics? No, I think this actually really, really matters because I would argue that the difference between traction and distraction is one word. And that one word is intent. As Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So mm -hmm. gentlemen, I'm telling you, 
There's nothing wrong with playing video games. There's nothing wrong with watching that big game on TV. There's nothing wrong with social media or YouTube or whatever the heck you want to do with your time. Do it. Enjoy. Stop feeling guilty or moralizing and medicalizing. Enjoy it. But do it with intent. When you decide how you will spend your time, you will spend your attention, not the media company, so not the tech company, but you decide by putting it on your schedule, you are turning distraction into traction, okay? Conversely, just because something is a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. Let me give you an example. For years, I would get into work. I would sit down at my desk. I would look at my to-do list, which was a mile long. By the way, we can talk about why to-do lists are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. We can get back to that later. And I would say to myself, okay, I've got that big thing I've been procrastinating on, that thing that I've been delaying. Here I go. I'm going to get started. Nothing's going to get in my way. Okay, right now, here I go. But first, let me check some email, mm-hmm. right? Let me just uh, scroll that Slack channel just to see what's happening. You know, just uh, what, what's going on around the water cooler. Or let me just do some easy tasks on my to-do list just to get started, just to get some momentum. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize is that that is the most dangerous, most pernicious form of distraction, the kind that tricks you into prioritizing the easy and the urgent work at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That's the most evil kind of distraction because you don't even realize you're distracted. If it's not what you said you were going to do in advance, it's distraction. Okay. So now if you picture in your mind, an arrow to the right, an arrow to the left, that symbolizes traction and distraction. Mm. Now I want you to think of two arrows pointing to the center. Okay. These represent our triggers. We have external triggers. External triggers are things in our outside environment that tell us what to do. Pings, dings, rings, notifications, all these things in our outside environment. Now, believe it or not, only 10% of the time that we get distracted, 10% is because of an external trigger. We tend to blame these things, right? The beeps, the buzzes, the boops. We tend to blame these things in our outside environment. Turns out only 10% of the time is it because of an external trigger. What's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time that we get distracted is not because of what's happening outside of us, but what I learned in my years of research is that overwhelmingly, almost all of our distraction, 90%, begins from within. Mm. This is called an internal trigger. What is an internal trigger? An internal trigger tends to be an uncomfortable emotional state. Mm. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety, right? This is what we what, what triggers us to look for relief from emotional discomfort. And we do that oftentimes with distraction. What I learned is that distraction by and large is an emotion regulation issue. And most of us have never learned what to do with that discomfort. So let me tell you, whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you are always going to get distracted by something. If you don't master that internal trigger, it will become your master. So now we have these four points of the compass, okay? We've got traction, we've got distraction, we've got internal trigger, we've got external triggers. All we have to do to become indistractable ourselves and to teach our kids how to become indistractable is to follow the steps, the strategies around those four points. So step number one, the most important strategy, master internal triggers or they will become your master. That's step number one. Step number two, we have to make time for traction. We do that by turning our values into time. We can get into all exactly how to do that. Step number three is to hack back the external triggers. So even though they only account for 10% of our distractions, there's some really easy stuff we can do about our phones and computers. That's kindergarten stuff. I only spent a couple pages in the entire book on that. The more difficult external triggers to hack back 
are the stupid meetings that didn't need to be called, the superfluous emails that didn't need to be sent or read. How do you hack back all those external triggers? We can get into that as well. And finally, the last step is to put up a firewall against distraction. This is called preventing distraction with PACT, which is where we make a pre-commitment to make sure that we know what we're gonna do when all else fails, okay? So with those four strategies, master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. This is how anybody can become indistractable. Holy, without, gentlemen, without, you know, Nir and I have never had an actual conversation before. So he's sitting here describing the code as this firewall. Um, he's calling, yeah, calling all of us out. The, the, the time, we've been talking about time and energy management. I love the way you, you frame it as, it's, a, it's really, it's an emotional regulation. Right. Right. And in fact, one of my biggest lessons that I, by the way, I wrote this book for me. Yes, sir. Okay, I want everybody to realize course, that. Sure. Like, I, I needed this book, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's why yeah. I wrote it, right? Yeah. So don't feel called out. I mean, this was written by the king of distraction. I was always distracted. Why do you think it took me five years to write this book? Because I was constantly distracted <laughs> while I was writing it. It wasn't until I learned these tactics when I really went to, to, to really first principles to understand the psychology of distraction that I could do something about it. And one of the lessons that really stuck with me is that time management is pain management. Mm. I'll say it again. Time management is pain management. I would add to that, money management is pain management. Weight management is pain management. Why do I say that? Because we now know that all human behavior, all human behavior, everything you do is not about carrots and sticks. We probably all heard carrots and sticks, right? It's about reward and punishment. We now know that in the brain, Motivation is spurred by only one thing, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. Mm. Everything you do, everything you do is about a desire to escape discomfort, even the desire to feel good, right? Think about it. Craving, lusting, desire, hunger, wanting, all of those feelings are themselves psychologically destabilizing. So what that means, therefore, if all human behavior is about a desire to escape discomfort, it's kind of kind of like that scene in the, the Matrix. Remember in the Matrix where Neo goes into that room and he sees the, the kid with the spoon, the spoon starts bending yeah. and the kid says, imagine there is no spoon. What if there is right. no spoon? Right. Well, that's the thing here, right? I'm about to have that same moment. The carrot is the stick. Yeah. The carrot is the stick. It is our desire for these things. It's the promise of the carrot that is the stick. Yep. Well, what right. that means that, therefore, right, is that, all these barriers to having the life we want, to accomplishing the goals that we know we're capable of, the reason we get distracted is simply because we haven't learned how to overcome and deal with in a helpful manner these uncomfortable sensations. To me, that's incredibly empowering. It's not that you're missing the knowledge, right? right. Knowledge is cheap, right? Our grandparents probably could say, well, I didn't know. I don't know how to lose weight, yeah. right? Today, yeah. who doesn't have it? And if you don't know, Google it. Right. <laughs> it's all yeah. there. It's all free. There. The problem isn't that we don't know what to do. The problem is we don't know how to get out of our own way. Yes. But realizing that the number one cause of distraction is just an emotion regulation issue, I think to me, it was incredibly empowering. It's incredibly empowering. And then it also, circling back to part of where we started on that, it it's empowering to know that if we can figure that out and bring our kids along with us, like we are getting them prepared for Whatever the future holds, right, is the ultimate way to prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child, because we can't prepare the road. That's it's exactly understanding right. there, right? And yeah, and I love what you said. And again, you and I never had any previous conversation around this, but talking about their meet, you know, their hypocrisy meter and all of that kind of stuff too. Yeah. By example, on this, holy, I, I, yeah, did we just become best friends 
Steve said, <laughs> yes, absolutely, man. I know. So gentlemen, here's a, gentlemen, I've got a billion different questions on it because I think what this man is doing in this man's work is fascinating, but I want to honor his time and I want to honor you guys being here. So please, I want you to jump in. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and call on you guys to, uh, to keep the conversation going. So Martin, yeah, jump in, sir. Good morning, Mr. Al. Thanks for uh, coming on. This has been a great call. It's full of wisdom. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Uh, Thank you. You mentioned uh, a to-do list is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Do you expand on that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So let me clarify. Getting things out of your head and onto a piece of paper or into an app, wonderful. The problem is that's the first step, but that's where most people stop. Okay. To-do lists have some real shortcomings. The biggest shortcoming with a to-do list is that there are no constraints to a to-do list. You can always add more to to-do list. By the way, I suffer from this, what, what I call the tyranny of the to-do list. The tyranny of the to-do list is when you come home from work, you've had a busy day, you just want to relax, you just want to hang out with your kids or have dinner, watch TV, watch the big game, doesn't matter. And what happens? You've got a million things you're still thinking about that you didn't get done in the office, right? All the things you still have to do. So even when you have leisure time, you can't even enjoy it because your brain's somewhere else. Whereas an indistractable person can always look to their calendar to know what is traction and what is distraction. Okay, this is an incredibly critical lesson. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. I'm going to say that one more time. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you don't have that traction on your calendar, if you haven't identified whatever it is you wanna do, watch Netflix, play with the kids, read a book, pray, whatever it is you wanna do, if you haven't identified that time on your schedule, you do not have a right to say you got distracted. Mm. Because what did you get distracted from? If it's white space, Mm. what did you get distracted from? (laughs) You didn't plan anything. So mm-hmm. a person who keeps a time box calendar doesn't feel guilty about watching the game or spending time with their kids as opposed to all the stuff that's left undone on the to-do list. They can enjoy in peace because now that's exactly what they plan to do. Okay. The other big problem is that because there's no constraint with the to-do list, you can always add more, right? Just add more and more and more and more and more. So when you come home from work, you've got this ginormous list of things you still not have not accomplished. And so what does that do to your psyche? where day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you said you were going to do this stuff and you didn't do it. Loser. Mm -hmm. And so people start believing this and you start hearing this ridiculous stuff like, oh, I'm no good at time management. I probably have undiagnosed ADHD. Uh, I'm never good at this kind of stuff. And that's not true. You're not broken. It's this stupid time management technique that everybody's been using that has been proven to be quite faulty right? This to-do list method. What's a much better method is called time boxing. I didn't invent time boxing. It's been around for decades. It is the most cited and studied time management technique ever. And it's incredibly effective. What you do is you plan your time by saying what it is you want to do. It's simple as that. Saying it's, it's, it uses a fancy technique called implementation intentions, planning what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. The beauty of that technique is that now you have a feedback mechanism. Okay. When you have time on your calendar, you have a new feedback loop because you know most people, when they keep a to-do list, there's no measure of how long things take. And this is called the planning fallacy. We know that on average, when someone says they're going to do something, it takes them three times longer to actually do it than they estimate. Three times longer because there's no feedback loop, right? What do most people do who keep a to-do list? They work on something for five minutes. Then they, oh, let me just check email. And oh, somebody taps them on the shoulder and then they got to do this. And oh, I got to make that phone call. What was it that I was working on again? As opposed to 
a person who uses a time box calendar, they measure themselves for, with a completely different metric. The metric I'd like you to try using, as opposed to how many cute little boxes did I check off, which by the way, I used to like write tasks in after that I completed them just to get the joy of checking on the box. How many of us have done that, right? It's ridiculous, right? Instead, the new metric of success is not did I check off the box. It's not actually finishing anything. The new metric I want you to try is very simple. Did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? Mm. That's it. Not did I finish the task? Did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? Here's the kicker. People who use that metric of success finish more than the to-do list people. Mm. Why? Because now I can say to myself, okay, I've got that big presentation. I'm going to need 30 slides. And I worked on that presentation for 45 minutes. And look, I got done three slides. Okay. So that means I need 10 time blocks of 45 minutes in order to finish the entire task. You can't get that feedback with a to-do list. It's right. only by time blocking and saying, I'm going to do nothing but this task, no other potential distractions. And that's all I'm measuring myself by. Mm. Okay. It's not about productivity. It's about attention management. That actually turns out to be a much better technique to get more done. Well, that's great. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Oh, guys, we have so much, so much to dive into on the debrief. So my, this is freaking fantastic. Gee, go ahead, sir. Yeah, my mind's all over the place. Uh, thank you, sir, for okay. for giving us your time. Yeah, sure. yeah, it's great. Um, uh, what I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, as you're working with with companies uh, to develop products and and kind of provide a deep level of engagement, right, on these products, um. How do you go about drawing the line and kind of maintaining the ethics component, right? Because, you know, you build these products and, and you want to make them attention grabbing. You want to make them uh, attention uh, kind of keeping, right? Like in the video game world, right? Like you, you they're addictive kind of forms of entertainment uh, that, you know, we've discussed with Matt. Like it provides these dopamine hits, right, that are constantly. Um, and how do we... How do we do that, right? Like, how do we can how can we develop a product and then still maintain a level of ethics that you're like, okay, cool. Like, there's a balance, there's a moderation that has to go along with that. I'll just be curious to kind of hear what your yeah. thoughts are on that. Are you working on a product that you're afraid people might get addicted to? No, no, I'm just talking in general terms, not because I'm building a product like that, but it's just just in general. I just you know wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, sure. So um, I wrote about this in my first book, uh, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. There's a whole chapter on the morality of manipulation. And I give people a two-part test. And this is for product makers, which I will tell you, the reason I asked you is because a lot of times people who ask this question don't actually have the problem. <laughs> because to, to, before I tell you what the two-part test is, let's just level set. The, the vast majority of people out there uh, listening to me right now, if you have a product or service, your problem is not that people overuse your product, right? Your problem yeah. is not that people are getting addicted to your product. Your problem is that not enough people give a shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that's yeah, exactly. probably the problem, yeah. right? Like very, <laughs> may you may you be so lucky that your product is used to an extent that anybody might even you know consider getting any kind of anything like an addiction, okay? And and just to to be clear, an addiction is not ooh I like it a lot. Okay, an addiction is a pathology. An addiction is a disease, and it's it's terrible. It affects around uh, three to five percent of the population. 
it's not, oh, I like Candy Crush or Facebook once in a while. It's it's a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So the vast majority of people are not addicted, right? We, you know, uh, a lot of people have a beer with dinner or a glass of wine with dinner. We're not all alcoholics, right? We have sex. We're not all sex addicts. Why do we think everybody who uses technology is somehow addicted to technology? So part of what we need to do is to start changing the narrative. Because I think when we toss around these terms, and by the way, everybody does it. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. But when we use this terminology of, oh, I'm addicted to technology, it does two things. Number one, it, it I think, is disrespectful to people who actually have this terrible pathology of addiction. Okay, It's a very serious disease. Two, you know, the word addiction comes from the Latin addictio, which means slave. So when we use this terminology that we're addicted, that we're, our brains are being hijacked, that we're slaves to this technology, what this leads to is what's called learned helplessness. When people believe there's nothing that can be done, they do nothing. And so they throw up their hands, oh, we're addicted, dopamine squirts. Well, why even try? And that's terrible. Because look, I've written Hooked. I know all their tactics on how these companies get you hooked. These tactics are good. They're not that good, right? This is not mind control, right? So for some people, it actually really is an issue. For people who are pathologically addicted, yes, it's a big issue. That's about three to 5% of the population. So there's a 97, 95% chance that ain't you, okay? Children, I think, are a protected class and addicted people are a protected class. But everybody else, I really think it's a personal responsibility issue. That's why I wrote Indistractable because there's so much we can do, starting with not believing we're all mind controlled. Now, what about as a designer? Okay, this two-part test I told you about. So in the very first edition of the book, I gave people this two-part test. The two-part test says that if you are questioning the ethics of how to use these tactics, you have to pass the, You have to ask yourself two questions. The first question is, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, is what I'm doing materially improving people's lives? Okay. Is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? And my hope is, of course, you know, I've never worked for the social media companies. I've worked for companies building gym apps and language learning apps and uh, all kinds of products and services that really help people by stealing the social media companies and the video gaming companies' secrets. But the first question is, is this materially improving people's lives? But that's not good enough. The second question is, I want people to ask themselves the first rule of drug dealing. Matt, do you know the first rule of drug dealing? Man, I've never dealt with any drugs, but I'm assuming I could probably figure it out. Um, give give a little bit of a, a free give a free sample. Uh, no, Good. try. Uh, Gee, you got you got one. What's the first rule man. of drug dealing? Who knows? No, that one's. Uh, I feel like that one is okay. Never. No, no, Sean's kind of got it. The first rule of don't get high off your own supply. Exactly. Never get high on your own supply. That's the first rule of drug dealing. I want you awesome. to break the first rule of drug dealing. I want you to get high on your own supply. Why? Because if there are deleterious effects to your product, you're going to be the first person to know about it. So I think as an ethical test, if you believe you are materially improving people's lives and you are the user, go for it. I think you can use these tactics with a clean conscience. Now, it doesn't mean you can't make money being a pusher, right? where you don't use the product and you don't believe it improves people's lives. I'm not saying you can't have a business. I'm just saying that's not a good ethical place to be. And it turns out, actually, it's not a very good business place. You tend to go in and out of business very quickly. But if you want to be on the right ethical side of things, if you answer the affirmative and say, I'm the user, okay, and I believe it materially improves people's lives, it doesn't mean you might have unintended consequences. I guarantee you Mark Zuckerberg had no idea uh, what he was starting in his dorm room in, in 2006, right? And of course... Yeah. Any big technology, you know, Sophocles, the Greek philosopher, said 2,500 years ago, nothing vast enters the life of mortals without a curse. 
So of course, mm. anything that has world-changing technology is going to have some downsides. But I think if you're on, if you ask yourself that two-part test and you answer the affirmative, I think I think you're in a good ethical position. And, really. and when you and when you say materially better, right? Uh, what, what do you mean by materially? If you can define that, just. Yeah, yeah. That, that's going to be a, a judgment call. So you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say okay. with a straight face, do I really believe this materially improves people's lives? So, you know, some of the case studies in the book, like Duolingo or Fitbod, those people are really improving people's lives. So I think they, with a clean conscious, manipulate people away, right? Because mm -hmm. remember, there's two kinds of manipulation. Manipulation is kind of a loaded term. It's not necessarily a bad thing because there's two kinds of manipulation. Manipulation, there's persuasion which is helping people do things they themselves want to do, right? We will go to a magic show and be manipulated because it's fun. We like, when we go to a movie, we know that's just flickering light on the screen and those people are paid to be actors, but we like it, it's fun. So we pay for the privilege of being manipulated. That's persuasion, okay? Mm -hmm. If an app helps me exercise more, that's persuasion, that's great, but it's a form of manipulation. The opposite is coercion. Coercion is getting people to do something they did not want to do. And that's almost always unethical. So as long as you're on that that ethical path of helping people do things that they want to do that you believe materially improves people's lives, up to you, right? This isn't about you judging others or others judging you. But if you can answer those two questions in the affirmative, I, th I think you're in a good ethical spot. Gotcha. I love that answer. Thank you. Yeah. My pleasure. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Mr. Jansen, how you doing, sir? I'm fantastic. How are you? Great, man. Great to see you. Uh, see you too. Thank you, sir, for being here. Um, sure. you, you said, uh, and I'm taking lots of notes here. So, mm. uh, distraction is an emotional regulation issue. And assuming we are self-aware enough to say, we're aware that the emotion is what's driving the distraction to get to the root cause. Uh, you've mm. given lots of practical to-do lists or what would be the number one way to deal with the root cause of the emotion causing the distraction? Mm. Yeah. Terrific question. Okay. So. Uh, there's lots you can do. There's over a dozen different techniques in the book. And the idea isn't to say there's one magic solution. A lot of people like the magic solution. There is no magic solution. The idea here is to not think of this as uh, a drill sergeant. Don't be a drill sergeant. Be a scientist. What does a scientist do? Uh, a scientist makes a hypothesis, runs an experiment, looks at the results, and then runs future experiments based on those results. So I want to give people lots of tools, lots of uh, arrows in their quiver that they can pull out and try to see if they work for them. I'll tell you what works for me. And this is all backed by good research. You know, I hate these tools that uh, these books where um, uh, they just tell you what works for them. So I, I not only do I want to tell you what works for me, but I want you to know that everything that I recommend, there are citations to peer reviewed studies. Okay, so there's 30 pages of citations to peer reviewed studies that, you know, they're, they're, they're not only do they work, but they're also backed by by real research. So uh, one of the things that you can do to bring awareness around these internal triggers is to note the sensation, okay? If you can just write down, what is that internal trigger? Remember, there's only three reasons for every distraction. Every distraction, it's either an internal trigger, so some kind of emotional state, an external trigger, something in our outside environment, or a planning problem. That's it. There is no other potential cause for a distraction. So if you can simply note why you got distracted and write down what was that preceding emotion? Ah, you know what? I was working on this big project and then I was the project got, you know, the, it was kind of hard. So I want to just check email for a quick minute because I got bored. Okay, write that down. It's incredibly empowering. Now, the next thing you want to do is don't be contemptuous about that feeling. Be curious. Okay, don't beat yourself up. Get curious because what most people do when it comes to distraction, they tend to be one of two people. They tend to be either the blamers 
or the shamers. The blamers, they always blame things outside themselves. Ah, it's my kids, it's my phone, it's my boss, it's email, it's Twitter, it's all this stuff outside of me. But of course, distraction has always been part of the human equation, right? We know that, uh, that, that uh, Plato, the Greek philosopher, talked about akrasia 2,500 years ago, the tendency to do things against our better interests. People have been getting distracted for at least the past 2,500 years. It can't just be, be because of our technology. There's always been this deeper reason why we go off track. So don't be a blamer because you're not going to change that stuff in your outside environment. Also, don't be a shamer. A shamer is a person who takes it on the inside. This is what I used to do. I used to say, oh, there must be something wrong with me. I'm no good at time management. Uh, why can't I pay attention? I must have undiagnosed ADHD. There must be something broken about me. I used to put a lot of shame on myself that there was something wrong about me. And of course, shame is a very uncomfortable internal trigger, which of course leads to more distraction to escape the discomfort of shame. So we don't want to be a blamer. We don't want to be a shamer. We want to be a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility not for how they feel. Okay, this is a super important point, guys. You do not control your urges. You do not control your feelings. All you can control is how you will respond, hence the term responsibility, to those feelings. So think about it in terms of, um, you ever felt the urge to sneeze? You don't control the urge to sneeze. I can't tell you don't feel the urge to sneeze. If you feel the urge to sneeze, you already felt it. The only choice you have to make is what are you going to do in response to that urge? Are you going to sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? No, you take out a tissue and you cover your face because that's a responsible thing to do. So what I want to teach folks is what to do in response to that uncomfortable issue, that boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety. Are you going to satisfy it by taking a drink, turning on the TV, scrolling something online? Or are you going to deal with it in a healthy way that moves you towards traction rather than trying to escape it with distraction? Mm. So here's one strategy that I use almost every single day. This is super practical. Okay. So I've been a professional writer now for over a decade, and writing is really hard work. Okay. It's never come easy. I'm banging out one word at a time. It's hard. Okay. I've already I've, I've published two bestsellers. We've sold almost a million copies. It's always hard. Now, all I want to do when I'm writing every day is just let me just go do some research on Google or let me just check email real quick. Or let me just go do that one thing real quick. And of course, that real quick turns into 5, 10, 20, maybe half an hour. And now I forgot what I was doing before. Instead, when I've replaced that behavior, whenever I feel that urge towards distraction, I've implemented what's called the 10-minute rule. The 10-minute rule comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. Been around for decades. And here's how it works. The 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction. You can give in to any distraction in 10 minutes, okay? You can stay focused on pretty much anything for just 10 minutes. So what you're gonna do, whether it's that if you're on a diet and you're trying not to eat that piece of chocolate cake, whether it's smoking that cigarette you're trying to quit, whether it's checking email when you know you wanna work on a big project, you're gonna say, I can give in, it's fine. I'm a grown man, I can do whatever I want. But I choose to wait just 10 minutes, just 10 minutes, that's all I'm gonna do. So what I do is I take out my phone, set a timer for 10 minutes, and now I have a choice to make. I can either get back to the task at hand, right? Get back to writing, or I'm going to do what's called surfing the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that these desires, these urges, these cravings, they're like waves. They crest and then they subside. So we think when we feel these uncomfortable sensations, whether it's you know, stress, anxiety, boredom, loneliness, we think we're always going to feel that way. But of course, that's never the case. It's just like a wave. It comes and goes. So if you can just bring awareness 
to your body. Sometimes I just take a deep breath and just sit with myself for a minute. And what I teach you to do in the book is to reimagine the trigger. So what I used to do was say things to myself like, oh, you know what? If I'm getting distracted, it's because I'm not a real writer, right? Malcolm Gladwell doesn't feel this, right? Adam Grant doesn't feel this. Why do I feel this way, right? There must be something wrong with me. No, no, no I don't have that conversation anymore. Now I have a mantra that whenever I feel the need to escape, I take that deep breath and I repeat this mantra. Feel free to steal it. I tell myself, this is what it feels like to get better. This is what it feels like to get better. And just that change of viewpoint, reimagining that trigger. It's not a deficit. There's nothing wrong with me that I feel this way. I don't control the fact that I want to get distracted. I can only control how I respond to that sensation. And what I find after a couple of breaths, I get back to work. And by the time that 10 minute timer is up, I don't even want the distraction, right? I'm into what I'm doing. And over time, what you're gonna do is you're gonna expand that 10 minute rule into the 12 minute rule, into the 15 minute rule. And you're gonna prove to yourself that you do have agency, you do have control. And that's the most important lesson to becoming indistractable is realizing that these things don't control you, you have control over them by using these techniques progressively over time. So that's just one of dozens of different techniques that you can start using right away. That's fantastic, thank you. Uh, super practical. Yeah, um, can I just clarify something? Sure. Um, so when you're talking, if you're doing like deep work or you're writing, mm -hmm. that emotion, that distraction urge comes, the emotion of I'm not good enough, I'm not Malcolm Gladwell. Do you do you write down like, I'm not good enough? Do you journal on that for a minute? And then do you say, this is what it feels like to get better? Or or is, you know what I mean? Like, is it is it just yeah. a quick, like, I'm feeling angry, tired, deep breath? Or do you actually take a minute to explore that emotion on paper? You're, like yourself yeah. personally. Oh, this is, this is a great question, Darren. So if you get distracted in, in the book, there's a, in the back of the book, there's what's called the distraction tracker, which you can just make for yourself with a little spreadsheet. Basically what you're going to do is when you get distracted, you're going to jot down why you got distracted with just one word. Okay. If it's an internal trigger, what was that internal trigger? If it was a an external trigger, what was that external external trigger? If it was a planning problem, what was so, but you can do it with just one word. Cause remember there's only three reasons for every distraction. Then later what you're going to do is to make sure that in the future, that distraction doesn't get you again. So Poelo Coelho had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. Mm -hmm. How good is that quote? A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So a distractible person keeps getting distracted by the same things again and again. How many times can we say, oh, I want to do that thing, but ESPN. I want to do that thing, but social media. I want to do that thing, but whatever. Okay, gets you once, that's fine. But if it gets you again and again and again, you are deciding to be distractible. An indistractable person says, ah, okay, you got me once, but you're not going to get me again. I'm going to take steps today to prevent getting distracted again by the same thing tomorrow. So that's what it's all about. And, and a really important point, you don't do that in the minute. Okay, In the moment, you get back to the task at hand as quickly as possible. But later, you're going to make time in your schedule. It's going to be part of your time box. You're going to put time to think about those distractions. In fact, I would argue one of the best things you can do is to make time to worry. Sounds crazy, right? But this is one of the best things I've done for my productivity. I actually schedule time in my calendar to worry. Now, I keep on my desk at all times. I keep this little notepad. There's a few things scribbled on it right now. And I have this amazing technology of a pen. 
And every time when I'm doing focused work, and I get this urge or an idea, a lot of times, or a worry or something I think previously before I wrote Indistractable, I would have immediately gone to work on, which is a terrible mistake. I just note down just a couple words to remind me for later, and I put the patent paper away. Then during my worry time, I know I have time to get to it. And here's the miracle of this, okay? About 80% of the things that I jot down that I thought, oh, this is so important, where previously I would have stopped the work I was doing and gone and taken care of, 80% of it, when I go back to it, Eh, not that important, <laughs> right? I could have, I, I, I'm so glad I didn't waste my time in the moment when I, I actually need to focus. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you clarifying that because I can see how you going through that. I would be like, I, I would take the opportunity to write down my distraction as a, as the distraction to take my, my attention away from the task at hand and yeah, spend the 10 absolutely. minutes writing about. Uh, awesome. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Sure thing. Yeah, my pleasure. Oh, so good. Mark, the man on the call who's probably at the closest to near in terms of the actual time for you right now, I think. Yeah, very convenient. Thank you for your time, first of all, and all the good wisdom you shared <laughs> so far. Um, so I have a question because I am um, trying to get into the habit of planning, uh, um, not having my calendar blank all the time. So uh how do you do it so what's your habit of planning looking like like yeah absolutely just just as a reminder the details the nitty-gritty are on my book indistractable i don't know if oh, I, okay. I'm, there, there is a but i will i will tell you exactly how to do it so i'm not i don't want to hold anything back but i just want folks to know if you have to go or you have no, and questions. I want, a lot more in the book <laughs> and i want and i want you to know and gentlemen this is part of the debrief i'm looking at this especially as you guys know month two Right, and we talk so much about time and energy management. I'm looking at this as something that for the entire program, man, makes sense for for me. I'd like to debrief with you guys. I think we add this because we've got Atomic Habits in there, which is a great, you know, it's a great book. But I, to me, like this is this is the complimentary piece, man. I think we need to have that integrated into our program. I Just appreciate the, it. Well, uh, so let me, let me answer uh, this. By the way, Mark, where are you? You're near Singapore. I'm in Germany. Oh, in Germany. Like oh, wow. Okay. South of Germany. <laughs> I see. All right. So step one we talked about is master internal triggers. That is the most important step. You have to have those tools in your toolbox ready to go so that when these uncomfortable internal triggers rear their ugly head, you know what to do with them. That's step one. Step two is making time for traction. Again, traction is any action that pulls you towards your goals, towards your values, helps you become the person you want to become. So how do you start? What do you do? You have to turn your values into time. If you want to know what someone's values are, mm. you look at two things. You look at how they spend their time and how they spend their money, mm. right? Because people will talk a good game and they'll tell you, oh, I value my health, but do you have time scheduled for the gym? Oh, I value my family, but do you have time scheduled for your family to, to hang out? Oh, you know, God's very important to me. It's important I take care of my spiritual life. Okay, but do you have that on your calendar? My family is super, my, my brothers and sisters. Yeah, but when is that going to happen, right? So- Putting those values, turning those values into time is what it's all about. And I would argue too many of us are, we, we put the priority on the wrong thing. You know, we're so stingy with our money, but when it comes to our time, we give it away to anyone, right? How many of us clip coupons and we look for deals and, uh, uh, you know, we split meals, we split checks when we go out to lunch. But when it comes to time, we give it away to anybody who wants it. Oh, there's that silly thing trending on Twitter or on TV. Oh, sure. Just take my time. Oh, whoever needs it. Yeah, sure. Go for it. Where it should be the exact opposite, because if you think about it, you can always make more money. You can always make more money, right? You can't make more time. I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. 
You can always make more money, but they have the same 24 hours in the day that we have. So what you have to do is to turn your values into time. And you do that by looking at the three life domains, starting with what is the definition of values? I'll tell you my definition of values are attributes of the person you want to become. Mm. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So what you have to do is ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And then what you do is you start with these three life domains. The first life domain is you. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people. So I want, I want, what I want you to do is to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend time taking care of myself? And that can be anything you want. It could be, of course, you know, time for proper rest. How many of us know how important sleep is, right? Our kids have bedtimes. I used to tell my daughter, you have to have a bedtime and go to bed. You're past your bedtime. She said, daddy, do you have a bedtime? And she called me out, right? I didn't. Now I do. I have a bedtime when I need to go start and shower and brush my teeth. And I, cause I, I know how important sleep is to my mental and physical health. So it's on my calendar. Do you have time to exercise, right? Is it on your schedule? Do you have time to pray or meditate or, or play video games for all I care? If you want time to play video games, great. If that's according to your value, to the person you want to become, spend all day playing video games for all I care, but put it on your calendar. So that's the you domain. The next life domain is your relationships. You know, typically relationships don't die. Right. We think about, you know, friends we've lost that we don't keep in touch with anymore. It's typically not because of a big fight. Turns out, especially for men, relationships don't die. They starve to death. Mm. It's because we just don't put in the time with our buddies. Right. So I had this problem with the friends a few years ago where my best friends from school, from college, you know, we I'm in Singapore, one's in DC, uh, another one's in LA. We just didn't keep in touch because we were just so far apart. And it really bummed me out. I was losing contact with my best friends. And then it got awkward because, oh, if we haven't talked this long, maybe it means we weren't actually that close of friends. It got super weird. So then in the course of this research, I, I learned about, about, you know, time blocking. And so I, I, I called them up and I said, look, I really value our relationship. Let's put time on the calendar so that we know we have time to check in with each other. So what do we do? From now until forever, I know that every third Thursday of the month, that's my call with Jeff. Mm. And the second Tuesday, that's my time with Travis. That time is time blocked. It's on my calendar. We don't have to go back and forth. Oh, can you make this Wednesday? No. What about this time? What about that time? Nope. It's on the calendar. Okay. So making that time for your most important relationships with your siblings, with your parents, with your spouse, with your kids, very, very important. That time with your relationship. And most importantly, for men out there, we know we are going through a loneliness epidemic because we are not planning that time with our friends. It used to be, by the way, previous generations, you know, our dads, our grandfathers, they had bowling league, they had Kiwanis club, they had the church club. We know that men of this generation, we don't have that time in our schedules. Like we, like previous generations, we have to bring that back. We have to have that time sacred on our schedules. The third life domain, when you start filling out your calendar, is your work domain. And this is where most people start, but I think it's actually where we have to end because work falls into two categories, okay? We have what's called reactive work. Reactive work is reacting to messages, reacting to notifications, reacting to emails. That's reactive work. And it's gonna be part of everyone's day. I get it. Part of your day, you're going to need to be accessible to reactive work. The problem is far too many people out there their entire day is spent doing reactive work. Why? Because it's very psychologically comfortable. I'm not really sure what to do right now. Let me check email. Email will tell me what to do with my, my life and my job right now, right? I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing, so let me find someone to tell me. And I promise you, if you don't make some time for, reactive, uh, for reflective work, if your entire day is spent doing reactive work and you're not scheduling time for reflective work, you're going to find yourself running real fast in the wrong direction.
Mm-hmm. So it's imperative. I don't care if it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. You have got to make some part of your day sacred for reflective work time. That's where the strategizing, the planning, the thinking, the creative work always gets done during that reflective work time. So that's how basically you make your calendar. You start with you, your relationships, and then finally your work domain. And now you have a time box calendar that from week to week, you can adjust. So I use Google Calendar. I would say about 90% of my calendar stays pretty much the same from week to week. And then what I do, what do I do? Every Sunday night, 8 p.m., I look at my calendar for the week that just passed. I look at it for the week ahead, and it takes me maybe 10 minutes, and I make those small adjustments to make sure that with that limited time I have in the week ahead, I spend it in a way that's in accordance to my values. Mm. Man, masterclass. What so good. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Absolute, absolute masterclass, man. <laughs> so listen, I know we're right at that hour. I know it's 10 p.m. for you. We do have one more hand, but I want to leave it open. If we, are you okay with Happy one to. more? Oh, no problem. Wow. Speaking of, because I budget, sometimes I get the question, well, what happens if something unexpected happens? Yes, sir. You kind of plan for the unexpected, right? Yes, sir. I thought this interview might go over. So Great. I didn't plan it on the dot an hour and said, okay, now I've got another thing. I planned some buffer time. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of ways around this. So no problem. Yes, I, I figured we might go over. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. So guys, this will be the last one coming from, from outside. So Chris D out here in Jersey. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks, Matt. And thank you, sir, for all your time. I mean, this is just brilliant and uh i will be brief uh because i want to respect your time sure given if we if understanding that we implement these things and we lead by examples with our families what would Mm -hmm. be a good implementation strategy that we could create or we can put into place to create in indistractable children our industry my son has adhd and I'm, mm-hmm. all I'm thinking of is, okay, I need to do this for myself so I could lead by example. But what would be the point of inflection with bringing this to our children? Yeah. Okay. So let me let me address ADHD. I will say, so my book is not written specifically for people with ADHD. Um, it's written for people who think they have ADHD but have never been diagnosed, <laughs> which is a lot of people. Uh, and it turns out that ADHD afflicts only about 3% of the population. So chances are for the vast majority of folks, they don't have ADHD. And even for people who do suffer with ADHD, you always want to start with non-pharmaceutical solutions. So I'm very proud to say that my book, even though it wasn't specifically written for people with ADHD, there are ADHD coaches uh, around the world who use it as the first line of defense. Because what we're seeing in the ADHD community, for a while, uh, it was just get everybody di- get get, as, you know, get pretty much anybody who comes in the clinic. We're going to give them a diagnosis and we're going to put them on medication. And now we've seen a real shift to say to realize this fact, which I've been saying for years, that pills don't teach skills. Okay, Mm. pills don't teach skills. There's nothing wrong with medication. Many people do need ADHD medication. The problem is it should not be the first course of action. The first course of action is can we learn some basic skills that can help us deal with this challenge? Okay. Uh, And so that's where I'll I'll tell you here in a a minute how to become, how to raise indistractable kids. But so that's just a quick thing around ADHD. Again, it's if if there's real ADHD and it's diagnosed, uh, there's nothing wrong with medication. Again, uh, but that's something that requires you know special assistance more than the book could could possibly give. But let me let me help uh, in terms of this question of how do we raise indistractable kids. So step number one, be an indistractable parent, absolutely. But in the course of becoming indistractable as a parent, it's okay to tell our kids we're struggling. A lot of a lot of folks out there they have a real hesitancy to show vulnerability to their kids. They think like they always have to have the answers. 
that's impossible, okay? I still get distracted from time to time, right? Not by the same things. We talked about earlier, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision, but I still get distracted. Something changes in my life. There's a new distraction. Okay, it happens. And my daughter knows that. And so what I wanted to, to tell her is that we're both struggling with this, okay? We, we know that these tech products are designed to be engaging. And I, and I would say that's a pretty good thing. We want them to be engaging, but that we need to learn some new skills to deal with them effectively. So she, we don't want to scare our kids. You know, a lot of people, they scare the crap out of their kids, telling them te technologies, melting their brains, and then, you know, kids see right through that. So don't scare your kids because, frankly, they're going to need these tools for their future career. The right thing to do is to say, look, they're built to be engaging. I struggle with it as well. Let's do this together. So how do we do that? Step number one is the same step for us. It's mastering those internal triggers. Let, let me get back to that when it comes to kids because there's some special internal triggers that kids deal with. Let me fly through the other three first. Step number two, making time for traction. Okay, so for most kids, if they're going to conventional school, they have their schedule already made until they come back home. One of the best things you can do if you find that your, your kid is spending too much time, quote unquote, on a particular device is to help them schedule that time in their day. It sounds very counterintuitive, but if your kid, if you find is spending too much time on Fortnite or TikTok or whatever, one of the best things you can do is to sit down with them. I did this with my daughter when she was only six years old. And I asked her, how much time do you want to spend with your iPad? At the time, she was watching a lot of iPad, uh, Netflix episodes on iPad. And she said 45 minutes. Okay. And I well, actually, she didn't say 45 minutes. She said two episodes. She wanted to watch two episodes. So that's about 45 minutes. I got no problem with 45 minutes of, 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 you know, age appropriate screen time. Totally fine. No study says that 45 minutes of age appropriate screen time has any deleterious effects. So I said, fine, but you're going to have to be your own cop. Okay. I'm not going to be the bad guy telling you, put your iPad away. I don't want to be the bad cop here. So I said, how can you make sure that you keep to the time that you scheduled for these episodes? And so she said, you know what, daddy, we have, um, at the time we had this microwave that was below the countertop. And she noticed that and she said, you know what? I'm gonna put in 45 minutes and then when it beeps, I can stop. Today, she's a teenager. Now she uses Amazon Alexa and she says, set a timer for 45 minutes and that tells her to stop. So it doesn't matter exactly what solution you use. The idea here is that we're not raising kids. We're not raising kids. We're raising future adults. Mm. And the idea here is that we have to teach them these tactics so that when they leave the nest, right, when they go off to college or work for a job or wherever they go, they can regulate themselves. So learning this practice of, hey, I schedule time. It's in my calendar, which is a huge thing because now they don't have to think about it all day. The problem is kids come home from school and they're thinking, when can I play Fortnite? When can I get on TikTok? When, 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 when? They know when. It's in their schedule. Every night, 7 p.m., you get to go on TikTok for whatever, 45 minutes or whatever time they say, okay? As long as it's age appropriate. By the way, do not let your kid use social media before 13. That's the age that these tech companies say, just a little disclaimer. But as long as it's age appropriate, have that time on the calendar, that very, very effective thing to do. Yeah. The, the next step, hacking back external triggers. Okay, the, the problem with technology and kids is not that what not the technology itself per se it's what the technology displaces principally sleep mm -hmm. so anything that beeps buzzes or boops should not be in your kid's bedroom i would argue shouldn't be in your bedroom either the bedroom is a sacred place it's for sleep and sex okay that's what your bedroom is for for your kids anything that might potentially interrupt their sleep needs to get out of the bedroom that includes televisions Right? That includes radios. That includes, of course, iPads and iPhones. That Those need to be charged outside. I would recommend for adults also charge that stuff outside. does not need to be in the bedroom. And the final fourth step is to prevent distraction 
with Pact. There are so many tools today that kids can use. There's one, there's one app called Forest that I use every day. It's just one of many, many techniques that I talk about in the book. Forest is this wonderful app that allows you and your kid. It's super simple. Anybody can use it. I'll show it to you right now. Basically, what you're going to do is you're going to erect a pact, a pre-commitment device is what it's called. So here's how it works. You dial in how much time you want to do focused work for. So if my daughter is doing her homework assignment, she'll say 25 minutes, 45 minutes, however much time you want to do focused work for. I do this as well. Then you hit this little button that says plant. When you hit that button, that cute little virtual tree is planted. And if you touch your phone, if you do anything with your phone, the virtual tree gets chopped down. <laughs> and you don't want to be a virtual tree murderer. That's right. So it's enough of an incentive to remind you, oh, that's not what you wanted to do right now. Very, very simple app. I don't have any affiliation with the company. I just think it's a great tool. And it's one example of many different types of pacts that you can make with, uh, with your technology. There's all kinds of free tools. And of course, there's many, many more solutions in the book as well. Now, if you'll give me just five more minutes, I want to talk about internal yeah. triggers because this is a big one when it comes to kids. Is that all right? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, so kids have different internal triggers than adults, okay? So where, where we have stress, anxiety, loneliness, fatigue, right? We have to learn how to deal with those internal triggers. Kids today have different internal triggers. And so uh, this comes to the work of two psychologists by the name of Desi and Ryan, who about 45, 50 years ago, came up with what's called self-determination theory. Self-determination theory is the most widely accepted, most widely studied theory of human motivation and flourishing. Every psychologist on the face of the earth knows about self-determination theory and self-determination theory proposes that we have three psychological nutrients. You know how we have macronutrients for our body, carbohydrates, fat, and protein? Mm -hmm. These are three psychological nutrients. And Desi and Ryan tell us that whenever we are deficient in these three psychological nutrients, we look for them somewhere. Right. Like just like uh, how sometimes, you know, pregnant women, they're deficient on a certain vitamin. So they really crave pickles or tomatoes or whatever, because they need more vitamin C. When we are deficient with these psychological nutrients, we look for them somewhere. So if you don't get them offline in the real world, you look for them online in the virtual world. So let me explain what these psychological nutrients are. Number one is competency. Competency is the feeling that we can make a difference, that we, that we can uh, master our environment. And one of the things that happened around 2008, around the same time that the iPhone came out, is the No Child Left Behind Act. Mm. And when you look across the country, we know that teachers today are compensated by test scores. And so you have kids all over the country who are constantly tested. You know, in Philadelphia, it's six times per year for a first grader, I think it was the last statistic. So what happens? They're constantly told, for some kids, you're not competent. So what do they do if they don't get that sense of competency? And this isn't all children, but a good chunk of children. If you don't feel competent in the real world, if you're not doing well in your academic studies, if you don't feel competent offline, you're looking for competency online. Well, all I gotta do is go on Roblox, and now I feel like a god. Look how competent I am. Look what I can do. Mm. So it's supplementing. It's displacing that, that need that they're not getting offline. The second psychological nutrient is autonomy. Autonomy is the need to make our own decisions, to feel like we are in control. And we know that this is the most regulated generation in history. Did you know that the average American child has 10 times as many restrictions placed on them as an adult? twice as many restrictions as a convicted felon. 
There are only two places in society that you can tell people where to go, what to think, how to dress, who to be friends with, what to eat, and that's school and prison. So it's no surprise when kids come home after a long day at school, they want to be free. They want to make their own decisions because they've been told what to do all freaking day. We all felt this ourselves as teenagers, but we used to go hang out, right? But today, parents don't let their kids hang out anymore. You don't see, I mean, the, the neighborhoods of America used to sing with the song of kids playing. You don't hear it anymore. Why? Because if you have money, you're sending your kid to Kumon lessons, you know, it's test prep and Mandarin and swimming lessons, as opposed to just letting them play. And if you have, if you, if you don't have money, the media has scared us so much that what do you do? Your kid comes home from school and now they're, they sit at home under lock and key because stranger danger. And that's total BS. We know it's the safest time in history to be a kid. So what are kids supposed to do? They need autonomy. That need that that sense of being able to control their destiny. Again, if they don't get it offline, they go online where they feel like gods. They can do whatever they want, right? And then finally, relatedness. So this we know that kids today have less time for free play than ever before. If you look at the work of Peter Gray, a psychologist who's done some amazing work, he's tracked he's tracked the amount of play that kids are getting compared to mental health issues. And there's a real correlation there. We know that kids have less time for play than ever before. Play is where we learn our place in the world. It's one thing if a parent or a coach tells you what to do. Uh, It's another if one of your peers says, hey, stop acting like a jerk or I'm not gonna play with you. So what we have to do is to schedule time for kids to play. Unfortunately, that's what it's come to. If you don't have that time, it's the best thing you can do for your kid's psychological well-being is just let them play with other kids. Let them hang out, let them do stuff on their own. And because if they don't do it offline, again, what do they want? They want that sense of relatedness. Well, that's what social media is for. If you ever played um, Fortnite with your kid, it's not a video game. It's a way for kids to hang out together. And I have never met a child in my 10 years in this field. I have never met a child who, when given the opportunity to do something fun offline, not like, oh, why don't you guys go read a book, right? But if you give them actually something fun to do offline, I've never met a kid who would prefer to be online. Even the kids who have ADHD or all the issues, they have something fun to do offline almost always. Maybe there's some exceptions. Almost always they'll prefer to hang out with their friends and do something offline. It's because they don't have anything else to do. That's why they go online. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more in that chapter on how to raise indistractable kids, but I hope that's uh, maybe gives you a flavor of what we can do. I mean, I, I just can't thank you enough. I mean, there's nothing more practical than a good theory, right? Or however that quote goes. And not only was that like the substance and the content and the 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 the, uh, the psychology behind it, but it was the applicable element that I'm legitimately going to go home and talk to my wife about all of this today. <laughs> and first and foremost, I'm going to go play with my kids. I can tell you that much. <laughs> but this was wonderful, and I just want to thank you so much. Seriously, my thank pleasure. You. Of course, thank you guys. I really appreciate your interest, and uh, yeah, I hope it was helpful. Oh my gosh! And you, gentlemen, you see why we we record these too, just in case. It's so take this home. Rewatch. I'm going to rewatch this with Heather as well. Um, there's just so much wisdom, so much good stuff in here. And, um, quite honestly, my friend near, I, uh, when I'm talking about redoing our list, I'm going to redo our list, um, of recommended books. We've got hundreds of men here in this brotherhood. We've got the ladies that are kicking off and, and going to have the same. And, um, I just can't see your work not being part of that recommended list. And, and, um, I'm so glad. I, I think the ripple effect that you just created for thousands of people without you even knowing, um, is just very, very real, man. And I know you've been impacting people with your work, you know, for a long time, but I just want you to know it's continuing. 
Uh, I really appreciate that. And, and sorry, I was uh, I was typing something in here. I just uh, sent you a Word document for the chapter about indistractable kids. I know that was a lot. Sure. And some folks oh, are saying I'm having trouble taking notes. So it's on me. You get this book excerpt from uh, that chapter on how to raise indistractable kids. If that's so a lot of that stuff about psychological nutrients is in that chapter. Oh. Uh, and of course, uh, I hope, you know, I hope that's helpful. So great. Uh, more than helpful. So, I mean, just last but not least, because I want you to go to go get some sleep and then uh, do what you got to do. So where do we send people that are just listening and um, how do we support you as an organization? Those are the last well, I appreciate that. So let me uh, put in my website here, please. Um, so that's my website, nearandfar.com, near spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far. And um, uh, if you go to indistractable.com, um, there is a workbook there that you can get, 80-page workbook. We couldn't fit into the final edition, so we decided to awesome. give it out for free. Uh, you can get that there as well. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Just uh, spread the word that we can all become indistractable. We will be spreading the word. And near near means, does it mean field or like a plow in a field? Yeah. Wow. How'd you know that? Uh, I do a little dabbling in the Hebrew side. So that's, that's amazing. That's a Hebrew word. Yeah. So um, yeah, you're, you're planting seeds everywhere, brother. So gosh, thank you. <laughs> brother. I'm so grateful. Um, I'm going to take these guys through a debrief. I'm going to reach out to you later too, because I want to send you something to just thank you. But again, I think you've, uh, you changed the trajectory of, of so many more humans than you realize, brother. So truly, truly grateful oh. and honored. Thank you. That means yes, a lot sir. to me. Thank you so much. All right. You have now taken the step to becoming a great leader of tomorrow. Join the Apogee program by visiting www.apogeestrong.com. For inquiries, contact us 916-728-0606 or email matt at apogeestrong.com. Thank you for listening to Essential 11, Shaping Leaders Among Leaders. Stay tuned for more episodes.